Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the TRU Business Law Society podcast. Thank you for the enthusiasm, Tanner. So this is our <laughs> second time recording this. The first time we recorded this, I got a nice woo from Tanner. It was much louder, but it destroyed our eardrums. So yeah, we're recording too. this again. So Tanner is far more excited than the volume of that woo. Right, Tanner? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very excited. As, as should everybody else, because we have a treat for you today. Um... This episode is not featuring me. I am not talking, but that is okay because we are in the great hands of Tanner and our colleague, Baljinder. Tanner and Baljinder are talking to a TRU Law professor. Um, this professor is an expert on the topic of search and seizure. Um, now, search and seizure, Tanner, I thought was a criminal law thing. So um, this is a business law podcast. Why, why are we talking about this? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, search and seizure is typically under the, the criminal sphere of law. But, you know, with COVID and everything, this is something that we had pre-recorded. And to be honest, it, it's something that can affect anyone, including business owners. Um, so some of the things we're going to get into in this podcast are uh what rights you have when the police want to say search your premises. Now, this could be the location of your businesses. And as a small business owner or a business owner, you, you want to know what do you, what do, uh, information do you have to give up? Same thing with your phones. We do get into uh, the search and seizure of, say, digital devices. So a lot of confidential information can be stored there. And if you're a business owner, once again, you probably have an interest in knowing these kind of things. So it's an interesting topic. And while it's not exactly business law related it is something that definitely a lot of business owners could uh should look out for well it is business law related everything's business law related in a way right? <laughs> at the end of the day i mean yeah everything. businesses run the world right so this podcast we, we could talk about anything here <laughs> okay i also got i'm also wondering we uh we probably have some first year law students listening in here um I was wondering, is this, a recommended, is this a recommended study tool here, uh, this podcast? Should they be paying attention? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is the only thing uh, first-year students should be bringing into their final exams, obviously. Uh, but no, no, in all seriousness, Don't it's, it's a good intro to, to search and seizure. And especially if you have Professor Diab, he, he's going to get into the nitty-gritties and, you know, it'll kind of wet your palate for, for search and seizure. Awesome. Search and seizure is very exciting, everybody. So oh, no, no further ado, uh, we'll get you to the conversation here. So hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Bill Jinder, and I'm here with Tanner and Dr. Dieb. Welcome to the show. Before we begin, we would like to make a disclaimer. Any information provided on this show is to be considered legal information only. It is not legal advice or a replacement for legal advice. Today we are going to be discussing the privacy rights that one has for their smartphone in a criminal context. We will also be explaining what these rights mean in regards to search and seizure of that device. Now I'm going to pass it off to Tanner. First, we must preface this discussion by saying that smartphones are a relatively new invention. Therefore, this area of the law is still rapidly developing. 
Furthermore, the majority of the case law that currently exists is from before cell phones, when they were essentially tiny computers, from before, when, before they were uh, tiny computers. So it is important to understand that this area of law could very easily change in the coming years. <clears throat> we are very lucky to have Dr. Robert Dieb with us today to discuss this constantly evolving area. Some of Dr. Dieb's published works include, Is Password Compulsion Constitutional in Canada? Protecting the Right to Privacy in Digital Devices, Reasonable Search on Arrest at the Border, and his most recent book, The Harbinger Theory, How the Post-9-11 Emergency Became Permanent and the Case for Reform. Finally, Dr. Dieb has been a member of the British Columbia Law Society since 2002 and still currently practices criminal and constitutional law, all while maintaining his status as a professor at TRU. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. I'll start off by asking the first question. So, Dr. Dieb, while search on the surface might sound like a straightforward way of describing something, in law the meaning is quite different. Could you summarize what search is in the context of law? Sure. Thank you, Tanner. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Um, well, so a search in, in law uh, can be something uh, obvious, like uh, going through your bag or your pocket. Um, or uh, you know, entering your house and looking around, but it can be something non-obvious, like um, knocking on the door and um, smelling the odors that emanate from the door when the door is open, or using a sniffer dog to sniff uh, odors emanating from a bag. Um, so it can be something non-obvious like that. Um, maybe another one would be facial recognition, using that technology to uh, to, to, to discover, you know, um, who, who is in a certain place, for example. So are you saying um, if I was, say, cooking something smelly like fish and uh, anybody walking by my house smelling that fish, they're essentially searching me? That's a good point. So, so um, something that the police do will only constitute a search if they do it to advance uh, an investigation. And so if they they, if they sort of accidentally fall upon it, but they weren't in the court, they weren't doing it to investigate you, then um, it may not constitute a search for, for the purpose of, uh, you know, constitutional search protections. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Dr. Diaz, I was wondering if you can elaborate on the point of what reasonable expectation of privacy is. Yeah, so, so the, the Charter, um, uh, as with the, the American um, Bill of Rights, guarantees us a right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. And the courts in, in both Canada and the United States have said that that right in the Constitution only applies to something over which you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So, um, so a good example uh, to give you an, uh, an idea of how this might work is, right now police are enforcing the law against using your your cell phone when you're driving by kind of sneaking up behind you almost over your shoulder um, in, in in another car um, they'll be sort of driving alongside you and they'll peek into your peek into the car and see you doing things uh, and they may even record make a little uh, kind of a, a little video of you driving your car while, you, while you're using your phone um, in that instance uh, they are carrying out a search. They're 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 observing you. They're they're peeking into the car, but what they're 
peeking at is is something you don't have a private uh, a privacy interest in it. The, the the sight of you driving your car and you know you're gesturing or you're you know you're like eating while you're driving etc that's not something over which you have privacy because you're doing it in public um, by contrast if you're using your your phone in your kitchen that would be something over which you have privacy so um, so before the, the protection in the Constitution kicks in, before the courts will take seriously whether there has been an unreasonable search, you have to establish that the thing the police uh, have searched is something over which you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And maybe just one small point, the, the word reasonable there um, is, is meant to capture the idea that you can't simply assert that you have privacy over something. Um, I'll give you an, a different example. Um, before uh, uh, mar marijuana became, uh, was decriminalized in small amounts, there was um, a shop, uh, I think it was in BC, that, that uh, had a sign on the, on the front lawn saying, you know, police not welcome. Uh, and, and then they were attempting to, uh, to engage in, in illicit sales if I recall the facts correctly. But the point is that this raised the conundrum of whether you can create an expectation of privacy and the answer is no, you can't. You can't simply um, assert that you think something should be private. The question of whether uh, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy is whether the thing over which you're asserting privacy is something over which um, sort of all Canadians or the average Canadian would assume there to be privacy uh, in that thing, so maybe the classic example would be your secret diary. You know, if you have a if you have a book in your hands that says journal, my you know my my diary, uh, the average Canadian, even if you don't think you know the content of that journal, if you just sort of leave it on the table at Starbucks and you know you go you go get a coffee and you just forget about your journal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Even if you don't personally care whether that particular book was uh, was something um, that you wanted to keep private. The average Canadian would assume that a journal, in a general sense, a diary, is something over which a Canadian should expect there to be privacy. So, so that's the major hurdle to, uh, to asserting your constitutional rights. Do you have an REP, a reasonable expectation of privacy, in the thing? Perfect. Um, a recent case uh, that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada is R.V. Furon. Um, this has become kind of a major case uh, in regards to privacy rights around cell phones, would you maybe be able to explain the significance of this? Yeah, it was um, it was a big case uh, a few years ago that, um, that that happened at roughly the same time that the American Supreme Court of uh, Supreme Court had to decide the same issue, and that is, do uh, can your cell phone be searched incident to arrest without a warrant? Um, which really um, opened uh, or pointed the court to the larger question, uh, do we have privacy in our cell phones uh, or, or uh, I'll put it a different way, is your cell phone simply like a briefcase you're carrying around or is it like a purse um, which can be searched on arrest without a warrant. When you get arrested the police can pat you down and maybe look in your bag you know for, for a gun that sort of thing or you know if for weapons um, or for you know stolen goods for evidence uh, if it's that kind of uh, case. Um, but when when police began arresting people uh, after cell phones became common, um, the lower courts had to deal with the question, is your cell phone like a purse 
or briefcase which can be searched without a warrant on arrest or is your is your cell phone sort of like your whole house you know or your whole life or your you know like is is searching a cell phone something like entering someone's house or or an RV for example and the courts went went both ways some courts said no it's really just uh, a big briefcase but over time in a in a number of different cases involving computers the supreme court of canada and and of the united states started to recognize that digital devices have a very high expectation of privacy because they contain so much information and they can reveal so much about our lives um a computer search is enormously intrusive it usually involves stumbling upon pictures intimate pictures uh setting up details of where we've been and what we've done so so it, it can be a huge invasion of your privacy so the united states um in a in a case called riley versus california decided that when police arrest you they can't go into your phone uh in the same way that they can go in into your purse or your briefcase uh without a warrant they need a warrant to search your phone and the thinking was that the rationale for letting the police search your 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 purse or your bag or your pockets on arrest without a warrant don't apply to a cell phone the police need to get into your bag or your or your pocket etc because there might be a gun there or um you know there might be there might be evidence uh, of a of of a crime but the the argument for immediately getting into your cell phone without a warrant uh isn't isn't the same um whatever evidence is there is likely to be still there by the time they get a warrant to search your phone um there was an argument that yes but couldn't somebody upon arrest use their phone um uh to you know to communicate to uh accomplices and 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 that sort of thing or um you know aren't there dangers around uh the continuing potential use of the phone and one argument made in Riley was that well fine then you could put uh you can put the phone in what's called a faraday bag a bag that sort of um cancels out all the transmissions you can you can protect the phone and preserve it in those ways that's what the americans decided no search on arrest of the phone unless you have a warrant the canadian supreme court uh, a few months later was divided it was a 4-3 uh, decision and three of the judges agreed with the US Supreme Court and thought no you shouldn't be able to search a phone without a warrant but four said well maybe uh maybe you should be able to not maybe sorry you the police should be allowed to search the phone to a limited extent if certain things are the case and so it's a it's it's a convoluted test it's quite elaborate um but the gist of it is that they can um in sort of urgent cases search the phone to a limited degree so they can they so so I'll leave it at that I'll stop there so that's the difference in Canada okay well thank you for that uh, Belgender um I was just wondering I know you mentioned some urgent cases is it possible to just maybe provide one or two examples of what when a police would be able to search their phone yeah that's yeah. a good well the the facts in Farren are are good examples so in Farren um the um Farren himself is an accomplice in uh, the robbery of a jewelry of a jeweler um of a jeweler and a weapon was used and uh, it was sort of uh, within you know within a few hours of the of the event 
and um, there was an exchange of photos, uh, like a texting of uh, of the photo of, of of a photo of the gun used in the in the event, and there was uh, there was an inculpatory statement about uh, about the person, and so uh, the thinking uh, on the part of the crown was that if we didn't access that phone immediately, maybe that text would have been deleted and uh, we would have lo permanently lost that evidence. And uh, however, however, that was, um, that was a number of years ago. I mean, by the time the case made its way to the Supreme Court of Canada, a number of years had gone by. And so the, the, the phone in Farron was quite primitive by our standards. It was like a flip phone with very limited capacity and so on. I wonder whether today the court would have made the same decision given, um, given the fact that, um, that much of the, the, the data that we um, exchange on um, SMS or, or iChat, et cetera, is backed up to the cloud. And so a lot of the concerns about the loss of evidence are, are different. Also, it's, it's a lot harder to get into a phone. I mean, another point to make about Farron is, is it already obsolete? In other words, um, uh, I, I mean, I would think that almost everybody now password protects their phones or uses Touch ID or uses Face ID. So the whole question of whether your phone can be can be searched without a warrant on arrest may be rendered moot now that the um, any phone that the police come across on arrest is likely to be protected. So uh, I guess the next question for us is, uh, what are some ways that can lead an officer for searching a personal phone? Yeah, how does it happen that, that yeah. they search it? That's a really good, a good question. Well, so police do still seize phones all the time uh, on arrest in cases, um, well, in, uh, you know, in cases where there is a, a reasonable belief that there may be um, evidence of, a, of an offense uh, to be found on your phone. So, so police are seizing phones all the time, but what they're typically doing is obtaining a warrant to search the phone, uh, which, which then raises a whole other set of issues. So I was wondering, a uh, warrant sounds like something all-powerful. Um, is it easy to obtain a warrant? It is in yes and no. So to obtain a warrant, the police have to put together uh, something called an information to obtain. And it's an affidavit, which uh, it's a sworn statement by a police officer who will tell um, a story about all the evidence that's been gathered in the investigation so far. And um, it will be very detailed. Uh, it, it can be, you know, anywhere from, say, you know, 10 pages to, you know, two or 300 pages. So, but, but so it, c it can be quick. It can be, it can be very quick to obtain. Police officers can put them together very quickly and they can send them off to a justice of the peace to uh, have the warrant issued. They can do that through, um, uh, uh, by the use of a telewarrant. So they can do it kind of, they can transmit it by email, say, and have, have the warrant issued very quickly, like say, you know, within the hour. So, uh, but, or, or it can be really elaborate. It can be a very long uh, ITO and, um, you know, maybe it takes uh, a little longer to obtain the warrant. But, but any, in any case, the hurdle that the police officer, the affiant, has to get over in, uh, in telling their story to the judge is to demonstrate that there are, um, 
that there are probable grounds to believe that an offense has occurred and evidence is likely to be found in the place to be searched. So, um, you know, they'll tell a story about how, uh, well, when it comes to computers, it's often maybe a story about uh, the possession of uh, illicit content, for example, pornography, or it could be that we believe so-and-so is uh, involved in the drug trade, and if we uh, and we have we have seized their computer, or we know of uh, um, we know that there are computers in this uh, you know in their apartment, whatever. Uh, if we if you will let us go in and seize that device and search it, we think we're going to find texts, emails, pictures, um, uh, or whatever other content on that device that will prove that they were in possession or they were involved in in the drug trade, etc. And uh, and warrants will eventually get issued. So um, we have uh, also an everyday example that we kind of run by you. Um, if you get pulled over for a driving infraction, we were wondering what um, is it possible for a police officer to search your phone and in what circumstances? I, I think the short answer is uh, that it's not likely going to happen. But you're but you're what you're asking me is whether it it could happen in theory. Could it happen? And again, because of Farron, the answer is yes, but I don't know that a driving infraction alone would do it. So for example, if you were kind of a known um, you know, member of uh, like a gang or the drug trade and we, we arrested you, we might have an argument under that, the Farron case we mentioned to search your phone incident to arrest. If, if, we, if we had you know, some grounds to believe that you know, there was evidence to be found on your phone that would be imminently destroyed and so on. Um, but let's say you were simply driving while texting. Would that be enough of a reason to search your phone incident to arrest? And I think the answer it would be maybe, but again, the court or the police would have to get over the hurdle of the test in Farron to show that, you know, uh, it was necessary uh, to avoid the, uh, the, the, the loss of evidence, um, among other, other factors in Farron. And I don't know that on, in the average case, just being pulled over for driving, a driving infraction, whether that would, that would happen. Um, it, it seems unlikely, I think. We were wondering, um, what is included in the search of a phone without a warrant? Uh, does the degree of reasonable expectation of privacy change, or is there a higher hurdle to proving? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so this is the, another fuzzy part of Farron. In Farron, the court said, okay, we police can uh, search of a cell phone on arrest without a warrant, but they, they can only conduct a cursory search. So. Um, you know, recent text messages and emails, um, in theory, like high-level stuff, stuff that you would just come across uh, in a brief search of the phone. So, so that's, um, that's good and bad. Um, the bad part of that is, well, where, you know, what's the limit? How, when do police go too far? And it's very vague and it's, and it's not helpful. But on the other hand, what's clearly not per, uh, not permitted is uh, like a full data dump. Police can't just seize your phone on on arrest and without a warrant do like a you know like copy all the data on your phone. That would be 
inappropriate. And if you had evidence that they were burrowing deeply into the files in your phone, like looking at photos from a long time ago, you would, um, I think you'd have a, an argument to make that they had gone too far. Uh, they had breached the rule in Farron. Um, we, you had mentioned uh, th that uh, the phone in Furon w was quite primitive, um, and our phones now are obviously uh, quite a lot more sophisticated. So, you'd also briefly mentioned that uh, the phones now are often locked. So, what significance does this play with fingerprint scans, facial recognition? Because to me, that seems like a quite a high, uh, reasonable expectation of privacy. Oh, okay, that's a good question. So the fact that your, your phone is password protected and, and that sort of thing is certainly evidence that you expect the content of your phone to, to be private. But well before all of that technology evolved, the courts, like I'm, I'm thinking, say, around 2010, um, you know, even I think before Touch ID, if I'm not mistaken, um, the courts had decided that, uh, that digital devices attract a high level uh, of privacy and and so um, and so um, face ID and all of these uh, means of protecting your phone encryption more broadly present a problem uh, mainly to the police a problem of enforcement so um, so when police seize phones or, or laptops or tablets which they do all the time uh, they're now running into the problem of uh, of not being able to to access them. So, so for example, you know they'll seize a phone, um, like in the you know for example the San Bernardino case, they they seize the phone of of a deceased um, suspected terrorist, and they couldn't access it. And and this is happening all the time. So they they get a warrant. That that's not the problem. But once they get the warrant. The phone is um, encrypted, password protected, and it can't easily be broken into. And so that raises a whole bunch of other questions. So this kind of bleeds into my next question then. Um, it, given now that everybody seems to protect their phones, and it doesn't sound like you, you need to open your phones if, say, a police officer just allowed or asked you uh, to open the phone with your, your Touch ID, um, is there any reason you ever want to voluntarily allow a police officer to search your phone? Okay, well, we should, we should um, uh, distinguish there. We, we, um, we're not sure that you don't have to uh, hand over oh, your password. Oh, sorry. So we'll, my so we'll my come, apologies. Maybe on that. we'll come back to that. <laughs> but uh, but the the other question is a good one because there ever is there ever sort of a, a time when you want to do that um, within Canada? I think the answer is no. I can't I can't imagine a case where uh, it would be in your interest to pass over your your phone, uh, like to open up your phone uh, if police were demanding to consent to the opening of your phone or your computer, etc. Um, we can come to the border situation maybe later, but uh, that mm -hmm. presents a different set of problems. Okay, perfect. Is there anything you should say, uh, like a polite way to say, no, I, d I don't want to give my consent? Well, you don't, uh, there, I don't think there's any uh, specific way that you need to do that, you, uh, but the point is you don't need to give consent, um, and, uh, and, and uh, you, know, you have no obligation. You're not committing an offense. Uh, well, again, we will qualify that in a minute. <laughs> Under the law as it stands at the moment, you're not committing an offense. You're not, for example, committing the offense of obstruction of justice if you um, 
if you refuse to pa hand over your password or refuse, for example, to you know, submit your phone to Face ID at the moment, but we can get into that. <laughs> I, I feel like this is a good point to, to reiterate that this is only legal information, not legal advice. So if, if any of our listeners are pulled over in the next couple hours and, and they want to use uh, Professor Diabs here uh, <laughs> as a way to get out of their, their speeding ticket or not hand over their phone, maybe ask your own lawyer for those kind of <laughs> questions. <laughs> Uh, back to you, Paul Gender. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, we were just wondering, um, how different are searches at the border and maybe even airports of cell phones? Yeah, that's a good question. So the the border in both in both the United States and in Canada, the search of devices at the border is in uh, a bit of a gray area at the moment. The there are. Um, very few uh, appellate decisions. There's a, there's a number of trial decisions and there are no decisions from the Supreme Courts of either country on what border officials uh, can do. Can, can border officials search your phone your, or your laptop at the border? Um, uh, or, or rather, when can they do that? What, what do they need under the law? Do they need, do they need a warrant? Do they need reasonable grounds? Do they need reasonable grounds to believe you're, that, that, you're, that you've committed an offense and, and you may have evidence of the offense on your device. Do they need reasonable suspicion of, of all of that? Or do they need nothing? Can they simply say, sorry, you have to let us look into your phone or your laptop? As it happens, at the moment, the both governments, Canada and the United States, take the view that they don't need any any grounds, any authority uh, to uh, or anything anything more than um, they don't even need reasonable suspicion to demand that you uh, let them search your device. And so they've taken that view um, uh, on it's sort of a long story as to how, but I'll make it short that the short version is that it's long been the case that at the border, courts take the view that the government has a very uh, high interest, a very strong interest in being able to search your, your personal effects because you're coming into the country and you could be bringing all sorts of bad things into the country, drugs um, uh, or, or, or things you, you, you know, items that you haven't paid duty for and so on. So the state has a very strong interest uh, in, in the search of your, your, your personal effects. And conversely, you, you do not have a strong privacy interest at the border. When you cross into another country, um, you know, it's, it's reasonable to expect that you have to submit to search. The government's taken the view that your cell phone is nothing other than a big purse or a big piece of luggage. So it's almost like the law at the border is still stuck in 2005 before, <laughs> you know, the courts have taken the view that no, your, your, your computer has, your phone has a high degree of privacy attached to it. So that's beginning to change. Some courts in both countries are beginning to recognize that, well, maybe when you go to the border, um, you do still maintain a high degree of privacy in your, in your device. But, um, but the courts still take the view that, nevertheless, the government has a high degree, a high interest in the search, in search at the border. And that extends to the search of your device. And so that interest prevails over your privacy interest at the border. And so 
they have tended to agree, the courts, that the customs uh, agents should be able to search your devices without any grounds, without any belief that you have committed a crime. And so, and so they have been demanding that you, in some cases, they don't do this, you know, they don't do this all the time. They, um, there, is, uh, there are documents from the um, Canadian Border Services uh, Agency that explain when they will when agents should ask uh, you to, to um, let them see your phone, let, open up your phone and so on, or your laptop. And, and really it does amount, practically speaking, to something like a reasonable suspicion. So for example, if you have a strange travel pattern, if you're coming and going uh, to certain places uh, you know, too quickly or like no luggage, um, you only bought a one-way ticket, that, that sort of thing. Um, if there's a suspicion that you may be up to, maybe you're involved in, in the drug trade or, or that sort of thing, um, they, they may ask to, to have access to your device. If you say no, um, they, they are in the practice uh, occasionally, I understand. This, this sort of thing isn't, isn't reported in a lot of detail, but they're in the practice of seizing those devices and um, seeking seeking a warrant to search them, and so um, it's in the few cases where they get a warrant, they open the device, and they find you know pornography. That uh, most of these cases involve discovery of pornography. That's that's how these cases come to court. In a couple of cases, very small number of them, it's cases where somebody goes down to the states or comes to Canada to buy something. On um, that they arrange to buy on Craigslist, and then what the police, what the border services find is the email that says, "Hey, you know, can I buy your boat this afternoon?" <laughs> to show that the boat wasn't theirs; it was a boat that they they just recently purchased, and that they were uh, they were avoiding paying the duty on the purchase. So, so there's a few a smattering of those cases, but um, but uh, that area of the law is still very much in flux, so, so we don't know what's going to happen there. Of course. Um, so you would briefly mentioned the Pensacola shooters, and I, I kind of want to get back to that um, just quickly in, in talking about our, our friends south of the border. Uh, so my understanding was Apple actually refused to grant access to the Pensacola shooter's iPhone. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, so what role does these encryption that these big tech companies kind of play in the search of a phone? Yeah. Okay. So, so to be clear, um, the, uh, the, the, that California case um, involved an instance where um, the FBI couldn't access the content of the phone and was asking Apple to assist it in creating um, creating a backdoor to that phone, and Apple's position was that we, uh, well, that that first of all we can't access the phone. We've 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 designed um, the operating system on the iPhone uh, to be uh, to work in such a way that uh, so long as you don't back up your 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 data to the cloud, um, it it exists only on the phone, and we can't uh, we can't access it. It's it, it's encrypted, and we can't break it open. So that was point number one. Point number two is, and we're not going to create a backdoor. We're not going to we're not going to um, create an update to the operating system that allows for us to have a backdoor because we fear that that any backdoor we create will be 
potentially misused by um, nefarious actors. And in advancing that position, they are saying something that, uh, you know, security experts um, in, in encryption and in digital technology have been saying for at least three or four decades, all the way back to um, the, at least as far back as the debates around the clipper chip during the, the Clinton administration, when um, people in the Clinton administration had suggested that all um, American companies that create technologies that use encryption be forced to create back doors that would be, that, that would, you know, like a, a, a sort of a secret key that would be to, to accessing the device that, that the company creates that would be held by the FBI uh, uh, to give the FBI access if it ever needed to. And back in that day, a number of experts surfaced and said, no, but you can, any backdoor you create to an encrypted system um, will, can never be kept from nefarious actors. If you create the backdoor, the backdoor is there to be, to be misused. And generally, um, my understanding, looking at the, 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 the literature on this, is that that hasn't changed, that, that, that um, countless solutions have been uh, proposed to this problem, but that every time somebody comes up with a clever solution to get around this, you know, a host of security experts say, no, 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 that, that, that system, that new system too can also be misused by, by bad actors, by hackers, um, and so on. So Apple took that position, and at least as it stands in the United States, there is no legislation compelling Apple or any other third party to assist law enforcement uh, with decryption. So, so that's where it stands. But every once in a while, you get uh, some sort of high-level member of government uh, calling for or even tabling a piece of legislation that would do precisely that. So, for example, in Canada, at the time that um, Bill C-51 was, um, was being revised, uh, or when, uh, sorry, when the Liberal government, when Trudeau was elected, uh, and, um, and one of the first things they were going to do was revise the anti-terrorism legislation of the Harper government, the Liberal government floated the idea of amending the law in Canada to, to do precisely what, what the FBI wanted Apple to do, which is to, to sort of create a law in Canada that would force companies like Apple to uh, assist uh, the RCMP or CSIS in Canada with decrypting devices uh, in, you know, in extreme cases, in terrorism cases, uh, or cases of, uh, you know, some, some extreme nature. And, and the, the gist of it was that uh, there were public, um, public consultations and uh, there was sort of a, uh, there was a significant public opposition to this and also among industry and all sorts of people, including law enforcement, a lot of, um, a lot of people in policing and, uh, and intelligence in Canada thought, no, it, it wouldn't be a good idea to create laws that could, um, that would lead to weaker systems of encryption in Canada. The prevailing view is that strong encryption is um, also essential for protecting, uh, pr 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 protecting essential infrastructure in Canada, like the banking system, 
as well as uh, you know everything else under the sun, all of uh, our personal protections. So, so that's where we stand, I think. I guess points to Apple then for uh, you know sticking to their guns even when uh, pressed against people like the FBI. Uh, I'll send it back to Baljinder here. Yeah, um, so I guess uh, this segues us into our next question. We were wondering in the reporting phase, um, what if someone sends you incriminating, informa incriminating information and you'd like to report it? Does that allow police to search your personal phone beyond the information sent? And how does this process really work? Well, that's good. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so what you're, what you're asking, uh, what you're, so, so just to answer your question first, um, you can simply, uh, you can simply tender the information, you, you know, you can hand it over without necessarily handing over your whole phone. I mean, you could say print the text. So this happens all the time, by the way. I mean, um, in criminal cases now, um, either victims or other people, um, like third parties to the, to the main offense will receive a, an incriminating text and just print it out, you know, and hand it over to the police. That way they avoid, they avoid, um, having a, an invasive search of their, their own devices. But one issue that it raises is if I write a text to you, uh, that says something potentially incriminating and it lives on your phone, do I have an expectation of privacy in the texts that I send to you? And therefore, um, if the police search the texts that I sent to you, are they violating my constitutional rights? Are they, uh, are they carrying out an unreasonable search? Because to be clear, they searched a text that I wrote to you that they then searched without a warrant? And the short answer is, Yes, the courts are, are, are recently saying that, including the Supreme Court of Canada, that I may retain a privacy interest in a text that I send to you, even though it now lives on your phone. So the mere fact that you text somebody does not mean that you lose a privacy interest in your, in your statements that then live on the other person's device. Um, but it's not an absolute. Um, it's kind of another fuzzy test that uh, that comes down to well, it depends, and so um, so it's never simple. Yeah, the more I learn about law, the more I, I find that it depends it yes. is everything. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time for this segment, but but once again, thank you uh, to Dr. Diab who has taken his time out of his busy schedule to be here with us. Um, I, I know this has been incredibly informative for me, and I, I hope it was for you. Uh, have a great day, and thank you for listening.